my CFO, who's kind of an elderly gentleman, called up and said, "Hey, Baska, we cannot pay the money for this this month. We don't have the salaries. <laughs> what do we do?" I know a gentleman called N.S. Raghavan. He was the co-founder of Infosys. He had just retired in 2000. Why didn't we go meet him? So the next day, it was just on 25th of that month, I remember. We went to went to meet him, and I gave him a lot of mumbo jumbo about how Bluetooth and wireless and multimedia is going to change the world and all of that. He listened to it about 45 minutes and said, "Baskar, I don't understand a thing of what you're speaking, but I can tell you, you folks are passionate. So tell me what you need." Is what he asked me. I don't think I was prepared for that question of "Tell me what you need." So the largest number I can think of is said two crores. I said I need two crores. Then he called somebody and actually wrote a check in front of me, gave it to me. That was kind of a completely surprising moment. I don't think I ever expected somebody to write a two crore check uh, immediately to an unknown person, completely out of the blue. And I asked him what's the terms and all. He said, "Don't worry about all of that. We'll we'll discuss later. Go solve your salary problem right now. Just continue. Then we'll talk about it." I think that changed the way of trust levels that people could have on completely different individuals and how how he saw entrepreneurship. I think truly that that was a big changing moment. And in fact, when we started Amagi, and the first check came from from N S Raghavan, so they wrote a twelve crore check without having a business plan. Literally, there's nothing. They said, "We trust you. Just go ahead and do it." I remember the first venture capital was Mayfield Series A fund that we're doing. A week before series term sheets had come in from uh, from Mayfield, and Mayfield sure told us, "Hey, can you give us the term sheets for the 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 final documents for the last round?" And he said, "I didn't have anything." And we had twenty five crores invested by NS Raghun, and not a single piece of paper between us. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of First Principles, a podcast from the Ken, where we ask some of India's most successful entrepreneurs and leaders. about their lenses not physical lenses of course but the mental lenses that equip them to see and interact with the world differently than others these could be their personal philosophies mental models or decision making frameworks but they could just as easily be their reading habits parenting styles or personal interests i'm rohin dharmakumar ceo and co-founder of the ken and the host of this show My endeavor will be to make each episode an authentic, candid and insightful conversation about the lenses each guest puts on and how they help them navigate both work and life differently than most of us. My guest in our second episode is Bhaskar Subramanian, the co-founder and CEO of Amagi, a Bangalore headquartered company that makes the software products that power most of the world's best known tv channels media publishers video streaming platforms and even smart tvs the 12 year company is on a tear having raised around 100 million dollars in venture funding last september it raised another 100 million dollars in march and a few days before this recording news broke that it was looking to raise another 100 million dollars it's worth close to 1.5 billion dollars making it a unicorn but it's also profitable making it unlike most unicorns once again the amagi we see today has very little in common with what it started as a company started by baskar and his two co-founders neither of who had a clue about the tv space but still hell bent on disrupting it by buying and selling ads they found a great investor and loads of luck so let's dive right in and see the world through baskar's lenses 
Entrepreneurship is like a drug addiction. Once you get in, you can't get out. Basker, do you recognize these words? It's been that since uh, my school days, I guess. <laughs> so mm. it is absolutely yes. <laughs> do you want to explain that? Uh, so essentially, just going back, uh, I did my first business uh, selling uh, small cuppies or called fishes uh, when I was in my school days. So that's my first <laughs> stretch into kind of getting into entrepreneurship to some extent, right? So that stint was about my me and my brother. We used to go into a, a small pond, get the cuppies, put it in a bottle, allow them to grow. And then actually sell it for I think ten paise each. <laughs> so that was our first brush to entrepreneurship, and I think it was fun. It told you that if customers exist, then there's value to be created. And uh, pretty much beyond that, life's always been. I've been an entrepreneur all my life, so never been in a corporate setup. Is about two years is what some total that I worked. So to that extent, for What's, me, you you said it's a drug. What's the high that it gives you? I guess I do not know of any other profession that I can think of that I can actually do. Technically, if, if if people allow me to say, okay, tomorrow get out of a magi, maybe I have to do something else. I would rather go back and do something else again. Uh, I don't think I, I I know how to work in a setup, in a corporate or in any environments I'm, because I've not learned to do that, and uh, that that's just been the journey. So I I don't know what's the other side is technically to tell you whether this is the high because because this is the only thing I know literally. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, we first met in two thousand twelve. Uh, right. When I met you as a journalist, and when I wrote my first story on Amagi, uh, you'd raised about less than five million dollars back then. Correct. We then met in 2016 when I was starting um, right. the Ken along with my co-founders. Right. Obviously, like a lot of distance has, like time has gone since then. Last year in September, you raised hundred million dollars. Correct. Then in March this year. You raised ninety-five million dollars. Correct. And then, in the last two days, news emerged that uh, there is a rumored fundraising of another hundred million dollars that's possibly coming into Amagi. That's a good rumor. Yeah, <laughs> I'll keep it that. <laughs> What do you intend to do with all this money? Uh, and where I think, uh, if you look at it from a journey of the of Amagi itself, it's been an interesting kind of a lot of twists and turns in the journey itself. But starting 2016, uh, we've been in a market where the market's actually changing and evolving. And uh, I tell a lot of people, success of companies are we are all children of the market. Markets are tra- transforming. We all look good, and then we continue to grow along with that. So I think we've been fairly lucky in that position in terms of being in the right place, right time, in the 2016-17 timeframe, and the whole streaming television has uh, started to really grow and dramatically grow across the whole globe. And our solutions had a good product market fit, which is so good that we're seeing growth tremendously happening. Today, I, I want to interrupt you there because you, before you go in, I I really want our listeners because having covered and written about Amagi myself, right, right. and what Amagi is today, sure. I know they're not the Very same. Very different uh, companies. Right. The closest or the simplest example I could find of what Amagi is, as you describe, is we're a glass-to-glass solutions company. Correct. But that doesn't make a lot of sense, sense. to the average Absolutely. lay listener. Absolutely. Would you like to explain, in perhaps a line, what Amagi is? So Amagi is a media technology company. We focus only with uh, all our customers are content owners, creators of content of some form. And when I talk about content, I'm talking about premium television-like content, live news, sports. Uh, the so your customers movies. would be customers would be like of NBC or CBS or Discovery, 
and a lot of mid tier tv channels tv channels and a lot of mid tier uh, content owners wannabe content owners who've come on board for example yahoo news is a customer of ours they're not the biggest television channel but really somebody who's kind of creating new systems and what do you do for them okay so what do we do fairly straightforward we are in the business of allowing them to make channels or production producing content moving that to every distribution platform worldwide wherever they want to distribute the content so it'll almost a logistics sort of a world of what we do and eventually enable them to monetize so we are a picks and shovels company so think about if you're a tv channel or a network you used to do all your jobs in an operating environment in an on prem big offices large number of servers and others what amagi has done is pretty much removed all of that constraint put everything as a virtualized software infrastructure in the cloud and through a browser pretty much you can manage all your media operations distribute the content worldwide wherever you want to take the content to and eventually be able to monetize it through advertising models that amagi is already integrated with so it's a it's a it's a business to business problem so obviously uh, we don't we don't uh, we don't interact with consumers directly uh, but we obviously enable and distribute content to end consumers on behalf of the distribution platforms so the glass to glass bit is from the camera, camera glass to the to the television set so pretty much the fundamental hypothesis uh, rohan is uh, fairly straightforward we truly believe that in a world where we live in today software can pretty much manage everything obviously a camera cannot be replaced as a glass needed there and a glass needed where we actually watch the content all of this in the middle can actually be truly software and truly virtualized and actually run on any sort of uh, remote cloud infrastructure without having to have a single piece of hardware in your offices or in your spaces for example that's the that's the, the direction that we've taken building a full stack solution for our customers it's a, it's a technology technology is complex we make it simple as far as our customers are concerned video is complex video at scale is complex but what amagi does is to wrap everything up into a single simple browser interface through which our customers are now be able to interact with systems operate their live sports news environments and eventually be able to distribute it wherever they want to go that's the core of the so these channels uh, and these publishers etc use your software pay you for on using your software basis. on a monthly basis and you move their packets Correct. their videos Correct. Correct. and their ads them to make it all over well. the world so for example take an example of a sports match when a camera sources we take in the camera sources onto the cloud directly enable them to switch those camera sources enable them to add advertising put in graphics all of those capabilities for example create the stream think about a soccer match that you're watching the final soccer match gets created on the software that amagi provides and then gets distributed to multiple different ott platforms worldwide through which consumers consume that particular content and we enable the monetization and ad breaks to become personalized advertising as well that's what we do today let's clear you will hit about 100 million dollars in revenue this year yeah thereabouts and and you're Easily. profitable before that actually yeah. oh, okay. Okay. congratulations uh, and you're profitable yes what do you therefore i'll come back to my earlier question all these hundreds of millions of dollars where do you intend i mean you're a profitable company you're worth over a billion dollars i mean the most recent article that i read valued you somewhere close to 1.4 billion dollars Right. what do you intend to do with this additional so the, money that you're raising money largely is for acquisitions rohan i think again the reason i think we're looking at this is uh, i think we've hit the 100 million dollars journey which is i think we've been lucky to be here i don't think luck's going to take us to a billion dollar uh, revenue that we want to be again we don't care about valuations as much as the revenue that we can actually add to our customers so a billion dollar annualized recurring revenue is our next goal which is about 10 times from where they are where we are today 
And to that extent, uh, the key thing we see is both organic and inorganic opportunities that we need to look at. The whole industry is going through a big transformation, which essentially means a lot of the legacy uh, infrastructure is going away. So we see a, a tremendous opportunity for building a large media tech company worldwide. And truly, money is a way to bulk it up so that we can actually look at inorganic acquisitions, which can help us to grow as well. So that's the reason why you see a lot more money coming into the company, largely to be able to fund our M&A activities going forward. That's where we're looking at. If I were to, if a, if a genie were to suddenly appear and to give you the option of, would you want to be continue being a $100 million profitable company or be a $200 million but loss-making company, which one would you pick? I will always pick the profitable company. And the reason is, again, cons consistently we've been focusing on uh, building a self-sustaining organic organization thus far. And we continue to see that as an important aspect for us growth. And again, this is just the DNA of the founders themselves in terms of not building a cash-guzzling uh, companies, but really focus, and again, as I told you, we focus on the customer value, not on the valuation. So to that extent, we need to be sustainable. We need to be able to have longer term. Most of our customers come to us today because they feel, hey, this is a company which can sustain and grow for the next five to seven years because the transformation that's going to happen for them, these are all enterprise large customers doing the transformations. They need that sort of uh, survivability, sustainability of companies that they can work with. It's so, a very interesting point that you make because this is something generally in the tech startup space isn't like, you know, no one pays much attention to this. The longevity of the company, are you going to be around five years from now, seven years from now? And you've seen this come up in conversations absolutely, with your customers? Absolutely, absolutely. A lot, lot of our enterprise customers, if, you, if you're going to spend $40, 50000000 million over the next four, five years with, with, the, with the technology vendor, I want to know whether the vendor will survive, grow, innovate, and be part of this whole equation. Because if, if I'm there for the next one or two years and you're going to be cash guzzling, my customers are worried first, leave alone we getting worried in the first place, right? My customers are worried because if you don't get the next funding cycle, their progression in terms of the adoption of technology will stop, which is much more scarier for them because they're betting on companies today, which will take them through the next five, seven year journey. So they need that sort of longevity to start. So with. in a sense, you're, you seem to be saying that in the space that you operate and with the kind of large clients like, you know, which have been around for like years and decades sure. that you operate, it's harder for just an overfunded but loss-making startup to come and disrupt you Absolutely. because your profitability Absolutely. essentially becomes one of the... It is a very, very important part of the decision-making process. Two things, we when we talk to customers, customers ask us, hey, do I know that for the next five to seven years, you're going to survive first? Do I know that you have an active roadmap and the innovation pace at which you folks will do will continue to happen? Not at the cost of burning money, but sustainably so that I know that I'm actually betting on the right horse. And this is a super important decision because, again, our, the slightly different things from other SaaS companies, and I'm sure there are other SaaS companies, which are, we are in the mission-critical path of these customers. Pretty much, for example, uh, take an NBC or a CBS, they're running their core operations on, the, on Amagi's infrastructure. Can I just interrupt you? So therefore, I mean, the analogy that comes to mind is the equivalent of a core banking platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. That a, That's a good analogy, right? So you are really, really the bank in the middle of it. You cannot afford to first, two things, right? You cannot afford to go down. You cannot afford to not support. And you cannot afford to change it every day. So you have to, you cannot change it very easily, right? Both getting in is hard, getting out is much more harder, both for customers and us, right? So 
You've mentioned um, going through the, your news articles, you've mentioned a few times, including to us uh, last year uh, when we did a story on you about an IP on the horizon. How far a I think it's about 24 months away so we want to hit about 250 million dollars sort of a revenue run rate to have that so it looks like it's about a couple of years that's what it looks like well, it's just fantastic i mean from roughly around 100 million or over 100 million to about 200 250 million in the next couple of years again that's what market sustaining <laughs> we would be there we'll have to figure it out all right uh, i i'm i'm going to close up this uh, section by asking you a bunch of quick questions about amagi just to get a sense of what the company is how old is the company so company we registered the company in 2008 launched our first service in 2010 so technically 2010 is when we really got into business fundamentally and uh, so it's about almost 12 years now and, and how many employees do you have we right have now? close to about 700 employees right now and can i take the last valuation or the most recent valuation as what 1.4 billion 1 billion is there you a number you can speculate the way it is <laughs> but actually actually right. that's all it doesn't matter that's all right. and and what's the total quantum of funds that you've raised till now so five it's about 235 million dollars roughly right all right. right and how fast are you growing we growing see we've been growing at about 100% every year for the last 3 years and uh, hopefully obviously we cannot sustain the 100% growth as we scale as well are you adding the disclaimer past growth is not an indicator past, yeah that i tell all my <laughs> but, investors but you gave that away because you just said that you want to be about 200 250 million possibly again okay, this aspiration of an entrepreneur versus the realities we'll have to figure it out obviously uh, we'll have to see how the growth rate can sustains but uh, clearly we've been growing at about 100% a year right doubling pretty much every year why were you able to arrive into this market uh into this growth rate ahead of others a couple of things i guess uh, so again the, going back to the story of the whole thing right so 2015 16 when uh, we were an india company earlier right so we've been pretty much domiciled in india focused on the indian market initially so 2010 we launched what's called the geo targeted advertising on television which is the, which is what amagi really launched with right bringing local advertisers to national television on your satellite channels and cable channels I remember that, that. that's yes. the story that we did on you which is Absolutely. you would buy ads Spots. from Absolutely. from the TV channels. channels correct and then you would slice and dice them correct. and resell them at a smaller price in smaller in cities to markets. smaller advertisers yeah. so the same 30 seconder used to get multiplied multiple times over almost 10 times over depending on the market so if you're in punjab you'll have a punjab ad in bangalore you have a different ad in uh, mumbai you would have a different ad that's the core of the business that we really started off with uh, we were completely outsiders to the business we didn't know anything about advertising or media or television or any of that sort so kind of helped us to pretty much start with uh, the basics of understanding what it means and go into that business four five years into that business it is fairly clear to us a couple of things right one is this is a two sided market problem one side is the tv channels the other side is the advertisers that we're working with the the success of the model actually was also the failure of the model to some extent the reason is it became so successful that we had the likes of unilever wipro glaxo everybody loved local targeted advertising because it was actually but the channels didn't the channels didn't love that because channels thought this is actually cannibalizing the whole thing so its own success kind of why would it, someone buy a national ad spot if they could buy, buy smaller ad, more smaller relevant chunks, ad spots absolutely, from you absolutely absolutely targeting was the the boon for the advertisers the bane for the, for the broadcasters so there is something called too much of a good thing too much of a good thing in some sense so writing was on the wall by 2015 that this is not going to be sustainable to grow a we wanted to build always a billion dollar plus sort of a business so this looked like something that's not going to go through 
but we had already spent four, five years in the cycle and we were figuring out saying, staring at a wall and saying, okay, what, what next? Uh, because we've been in the business of the four, five years, we learned a lot about how legardish the whole TV industry was. We said, why are these guys using a lot of servers, large hard equipment, millions of dollars that they've been spending on all of this equipment? We saw the opportunity of streaming starting to happen. And again, uh, US is starting to happen. So we went to the US. We looked at the whole space and said, okay, this is going to change now. Streaming is becoming uh, the, the norm. We were waiting for it in 2010. didn't happen. But 2016-17 looked like a time frame that it's going to start to happen. So my colleague and co-founder Srini just packed his bags, moved to LA with his family. And we said, okay, let's, let's get into an entirely new business. We went to our board and said, you know what? Uh, this is hundreds of crores of revenue we're making. We said, we'll sunset all of that. And then we're going to get into another business, which is uh, which is all about streaming television and a SaaS model. We truly believe this is going to change the world, is what we pitched. Please hold that thought, because this is a very interesting transition and pivot that you did. Because like you said, you had significant revenue. True. You're already raised significant amounts of, if Absolutely. I'm not mistaken, close to $40 million. Correct. You're already raised till Correct. then. Absolutely. It's not the kind of time when someone pivots, but you still, you chose we, to. There was no other, I think there was two things, right? One was there was ch choices in life was limited. No, uh, I'd like to come back to this correct, later. Right, right. Uh, for now, I'd like to switch back yeah. to a little bit about you. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff about you uh, from our earlier conversations, from our research. One of them is that you dropped out of your master's degree at IIT Bombay. Correct. Why? Uh, why? Uh, largely, again, again, that that leads lost slightly more history <laughs> as well in some sense, right? See, I've been a self-learner all my life, so never thought college, in fact, and I'll come to some of my <laughs> personal stories right now, but again, I never thought college is something that's interesting to start with. But when, and computer science was my first love, so software was the first love that I had. So pretty much I've been reading a lot more and obviously... Bill Gates was your hero. Bill Gates was my hero, actually, to start with. So I was reading a lot of things. And then um, I got an opportunity in master's. Then I went to IIT Bombay. Technically, I said, hey, this is something that let's learn something new from professors is what I went in. Unfortunately, the whole community of, uh, again, master's, and I hope that's changed in the country, were people who were looking to do grades. So they were all looking at professors who would give them an A or a B grade. And there were good courses where there was nobody attending those courses because professors actually were very harsh in terms of grades. For me, it didn't matter. Actually, I was there to learn. And for me, didn't have a choice. Then I went to the professor. The professor said, you know what? I cannot take your courses because you're the only one person. We cannot do it. At least I need three people. And I couldn't really convince any of my classmates there because everybody was looking for a career. And for them, grades mattered. It didn't matter to me. I just got frustrated. So I just packed my bags and called my dad and said, I'm going to come back. And I just came back. <laughs> so. I want to ask you a question on this. Uh, you said that uh, you were not interested in a career and when you talked to your father, he was okay with it. Uh, one of the other things that you've mentioned in earlier interviews is that your growing up in a middle-class household did inculcate a certain set of values in you and your other co-founders as well and I'll come to that later. But I can also see that in such a scenario, a lot of middle-class parents would say, you've got into a prestigious university, your entire career is ahead of you, how can you let this go? Why did that not happen no, with you? Slightly different family. <laughs> again, uh, I think, again, going back, my father uh, comes from a much more poorer background. So he actually, he lost his father maybe a, when he was three years. So, so pretty much he's not seen anything. So he's come from an extremely 
poor background. So when he has kind of crossed that and come into a middle class was an achievement for him, but he always aspired to be an entrepreneur himself. So I think in some sense of a brush of stroke that he always used to tell me, hey, if you want to take entrepreneurship, take it up. I couldn't do it in my life, but you should take that bets and then move forward. To that extent, I think we had a f- much more of an open family environment. They That's didn't care about because this. Because I so. can imagine, right. had your father made the transition to a career earlier, True. it's quite possible that he might convince you for Correct. a career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, right. So again, these are all family situations at that point in time. He was fairly comfortable. He said, just go ahead to do whatever you like. And I think that gave a lot of confidence to get there. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Bill Gates uh, was one of your heroes and you seem to have also acted out parts of, you know, I mean, Bill Gates' life, which is actually turning an entrepreneur. You started writing software uh, when you were still at school, etc. You dropped out of college, so there's a little bit of like, you know, Mark That's Zuckerberg, etc. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you did a lot of this uh, before it was fashionable too. Uh, which is very, um, I, I must say, like, you know, I mean, it's it's not easy to have done this in the 90s. Right, it's in the, the 90s, early 90s, correct, 90s, right? absolutely. Uh, how has your, you know, family and your middle class uh, upbringing influenced your worldview? Multiple ways, actually. One of the things, I think, few few things which have kind of solidly stuck in my mind from, from my childhood days, which I think even today continues, is the ability to be what I call, and again, this is a core value in our company, is what we call as vulnerability. Vulnerability is a core value in our company. That's fascinating. Vulnerability is a core value, core value for of the Amagi. company. Yes, correct. That's and vulnerability is obviously, a, in English, it's, it means weakness. But in our stuff, it's, it's one of the biggest strengths. And the way it happens is we expect everybody in the company to feel extremely comfortable talking about Mistakes, talking about, hey, this is not the way we wanted to do it. We made a mistake. We're going to go back, relook at it and come back. We wanted people to feel as comfortable as they would do with their family members to some extent. That comfort and honesty is super important for us. In fact, we don't want anybody to be guarded in the company. We tell them exactly the way it is. We're not going to be judging each other through these conversations and kind of keep it very, very open. So that's made a big difference for us as a company. And again, from early days, Everybody in the company understands that they can be very, very comfortable and open about conversations. Nobody's going to get judged. And uh, there are times when I, I, I kind of tell people, right, I've gone into meetings where my team will say, Basket, don't come in. You're not going to add any value today, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> I can actually go back to my work and yet feel comfortable because all of us have that advantage of being frank about each other and being comfortable about it. I think that's a super important capability, which came from my family. When I started, I think one of the things at home, we were taught, literally, is saying, hey, feel comfortable about yourself, who you are, is is just be you, originally you. And in fact, all our lives, we kind of practice that as, a, as an important aspect. I, I'd like to kind of just go a little bit more deeper into this, because many organizations um, sort of almost celebrate failure or support failure or risk-taking. But that is, I mean, if you look at failure as an organizational value or like, you know, celebrating failure, it's about taking risks and the outcome of Correct. what you did. Correct. Vulnerability is about you, you. yourself. Individual. And yes. it's about, it's okay to be vulnerable. Uh, so that's that's a very, um, I, I, I must be honest, right? I've never seen, vulnerability is one of those values over the last, like, you know, 10 years, five years or so that more and more organizations, psychologists are like, you know, encouraging organizations to adopt, but I have not seen no, this has been a kind of a natural evolution from a company standpoint because uh, that that tends to provide the feeling of comfort. I think all our teams today, when they enjoy the whole work and the journey, 
is not feeling judged at every point in time. All our meetings, all our discussions, I have gone to my all hands and say, you know what, I thought this will work, didn't work. Sorry, folks, I'm going to return it back. I'll bring it back saying, hey, something is wrong here, which we didn't anticipate. Feeling that comfort and then feeling that everybody can have these conversations has made a much more uh, softer environment, if you will, in terms of the comfort of the environment is much, much more innovating in some sense, right? So uh, the question that I asked you was that which of, so the first value that you said your middle class is vulnerability. Is there anything else? The second aspect is in terms of respect for individuals, which is both diversity and respect for individuals and kind of what I call we is again, one of the learnings. And again, I've, I've kind of studied and schooled and uh, lived in Coimbatore, a small town, uh, a town where you get to feel. And I think at that point in time, when we were in the early days, I think we had this whole, uh, Sinhalese, a uh, lot of people from Sri Lanka actually moved back to India at that point in time. I don't know if you remember our early days in the 1980s, right? So that was the time when I think uh, we had a lot of diversity of people around us, right? Uh, around us coming from different cultures and geographies and actually start, starting to settle down. As an early, as a child, you start started really experiencing diversity. Experiencing, and again, our parents inculcated a lot of what's called respect for each of the dignity of labor, which is super important. And I truly believe sometimes we do lose it in some of our uh, situations here with a lot of people I do talk about is the whole idea of being able to respect everybody for the job they do and feel comfortable that that there is diversity in our lives. And then kind of that was deeply inculcated into the culture because of the environment and the milieu where we actually grew to that extent. And we continue that in our jobs, right? In fact, in our company, the first person that we introduce is uh, Shardama, who's our tea, who actually prepares tea for all of us. She's as important or maybe more important than most of us because that's, that's a core element that she does. She does it extremely well and we respect her for that. And in fact, um, sometimes in some of the interviews of people that I do, if they disrespect the person who's bringing tea, we don't select them. Literally, we kind of filter them out because saying, hey, if you're not able to treat a person uh, for the job they do and for what it is, we don't think uh, we want to take them in, for example. It doesn't matter. The competition doesn't matter at that point of time. That's great. Um, what is the, in, I've observed, and like, you know, this has been a documented phenomena as well, as for a lot of the people who come from the newer, younger generations who have been raised in privilege, relative or absolute, their worldview is very different. Right? Have you experienced that? Uh, because you're a large company now, you'll have a like you know diverse set of employees, many of whom are younger and who don't view the world in the same way. Do you see the difference that privilege brings to the way people approach their careers? They do absolutely. Because again, it's not their their they've been kind of groomed groomed and grown in a particular environment, and have not seen the other side of things. For example. And again, a lot of work that we're doing right now is exactly for that, right? So all our social responsibility systems that we ranked put in place, for example, is for people to experience the world of how much of privilege that we have today, which doesn't exist for the a large part of the world to some extent, right? So we're trying to bring that, inculcate that values and cultures to that. But what I have seen fundamentally is people are comfortable. See, again, if you're comfortable about yourself, which is what we are, I think they learn from that as well. And we expect to be comfortable with with what they are as well. So I don't think we're trying to judge them saying, oh, you're coming from a privileged background and uh, the way you act is not going to be acceptable or anything. Because as a culture, that's the first part, is, is to really assimilate every possible diversity of every fashion. 
so to that extent at least uh, maybe my, my interactions also kind of limited today in terms of the more younger generations to some extent but uh, clearly we've kind of got into a comfortable sort of a, uh, what i call a rhythm if you will um, good or bad I, i'm not able to judge it but <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> what advice would you give to uh, someone like you currently like you know in their masters degree and probably feeling like someone like you uh, back then like you know what would you tell them today don't uh, leave it <laughs> i think that's uh, that answer is fairly straightforward unless unless you're really excited about something and then want to do it there's no good reason i think and again i have a fairly uh, strong view on education but <laughs> that apart <laughs> might not be the most uh, politically correct views but uh, i'd like to hear it uh again i don't feel education again i'm sure education is broken all of us talk about it every time so i did pull my children out of school uh when they were 6th grade pretty much homeschooled them uh so you how many kids i have two children how so old are they may i ask? one is 16 and other is 14 right now so we kind of pretty much homeschooled them starting from 6th grade so we put them in alternate school pull them back and said okay let's 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 what let's is teach the trigger? them trigger was fundamentally uh, my eldest son for, for example was interested in extremely interested in physics and math and soccer so this is like a odd combination which never works right so both my children are soccer uh, they really they really serious about soccer as a career option again millions of people play soccer i don't know what's going to happen but at least they were interested in it. so we wanted to kind of give an alternate mechanism to say okay you do your sports 3 days and uh, we'll educate you in 3 days and you can actually be better you can do physics and math in details you can get into so more advanced courses and school will never kind of accommodate any of those capabilities for example so we we took away history we took away geography we took away civics all the bad subjects that we didn't want to want them to study because history is so biased these days that we said no history needed unless you're mature enough to really learn history so we kind of moved out so we could kind of play around with a lot of the courses and the subjects and kind of bring in a very different Who's we? we means my, myself and vidya vidya is my co-founder and uh, my spouse <laughs> so so shrini vidya and myself are the one, three of us are classmates in college and how hands on has his experience been because it sounds very hands on as a parent i must tell you this of just even though i have just one <laughs> son but still no it's been like uh, it's been an interesting journey it's an exploration for ourselves to, to some extent that's what i tell my children that we are learning along with you folks in terms of relearning how physics and chemistry and math look like to some extent and uh, i think it's been extremely rewarding uh, both i'm I, i don't know about my children but at least for me personally it's been rewarding <laughs> this is a great cue for me to ask you if you were to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 as a ceo and as a parent right. what would those ratings be i think it'd be pretty balanced i think both of them i've not done a great job in both but maybe 7 is a good number i would put for both literally <laughs> right. uh, are there any leakage of insights across your role as ceo and parent he does a lot of things does right and again uh, when i uh, teach my children for example the first thing that i tell them is go back to core principles so again the, the way i teach is and again the same thing i practice in the company as well as always ask start with first principles saying hey let's let's go back to basics of life if you that's can that's the title build, of our show as I well i know that i saw that actually <laughs> and that was the exciting part actually right i tell people both both, both my meetings and in my home the same conversation happens is are you do you know the first principles of this so don't need to know your equations can you start from scratch 
can you rebuild yourself why the of your kids ever asked you dad do you ever say this in office i think they've seen it as well because <laughs> i do sometimes they do come to uh, when they were younger they used to come to meetings we used to keep them keep them meeting so they've seen us do that so first principles is score for the for both of the systems that we do right could you help define first principles as you see it for our listeners so simple right in a, in an education setting it's largely telling people you know what you don't need to know if you know the basics of the behaviors of nature you should be able to build out out and actually come back to the same uh, conversations of what the scientists did eventually uh, we do two things one is obviously core first principles of what what it is all about second is history of the of the discoveries themselves right so i always love history in terms of history of innovations itself so how an atomic structure got created so i don't start with saying this is the atomic structure i put them into a stuff saying hey okay, you are the scientist now you are in 1600s now let's talk about it what what do you know about atom what do you why is there an atom so we kind of start with that sort of basic questioning uh, goes into philosophy to some extent and then kind of evolve from there the same conversations i have with my meetings in offices where i say hey, why are we doing let's let's go back to the core of what we want the biggest uh, success and again this is also uh, for us as a company is always been ignorance was a very important part of the whole equation starting from ignorance always provided us perspectives unique insights which you as an industry if you're an industry veteran unfortunately you're conditioned largely my biggest fear and the biggest opportunity lies in being ignorant and continuing to be having that curiosity from an ignorant standpoint to start off with that and that's what we do in all our meetings and design discussions and every our product discussions saying hey let's go back to the basics what are we trying to accomplish how do we go about it and assuming we didn't know anything about it what would be our first step right being an outsider always is a fun way to look at things when you're hiring and i'm sure you must be spending a lot of your time hiring and you come right. across two candidates uh one of who is been there done that in your space knows everything and the other one is like you said ignorant true what what are the occasions in which you would pick the ignorant person what would you see in the ignorant person that makes you pick that person over the expert it's really the understanding of conceptually being able to build things right depending on the job competency they are in in fact we do prefer people outside the industry in fact a lot of the people that we hire are people who are not in the industry because for me you were outsiders I, as well we are we were outsiders we could learn through the whole thing and there was no good reason why we cannot uh, get everybody else to learn through so learnability is important problem solving is important and then the foundational fundamental first principles of whatever they've done so in fact we in fact i remember getting to a meeting and somebody who had i think chemical engineering or something they've done so we started talking about chemical engineering and core aspects what did they love about their courses it was nothing to do with what we did but if you know foundational elements you know how to solve problems in life and you're curious about new things and you know how to learn that's all the three things you need has the definition of success changed today i'm sure it must have but like you know what was your definition of success when you were in your 20s versus today again uh truly from a success standpoint rohan again the way i've always measured it is uh journey is a destination for me personally and again this is something that i tell my teams tell my people everybody so to that extent am i happy every day walking in and saying okay let's do something together is for me the definition of success it's never changed in fact in the last 20 years i don't think we were aspiring to do something or be something to that extent right so instead of it it was a game for ourselves it was a game that i felt that i need to play in my own turf rather than others other stuff that's that's very interesting and this is uh, you use the word game right. and there's a very fascinating book about business which is called the great game okay i've um, read it <laughs> uh, 
So, so I mean, so, so please continue and right. like you know the journey being the destination. I must ask you this yes. like you know question, which I I think I know how you'll answer, which is, have you ever thought about retiring? Have you ever thought about, dreamt about a day when you're not doing what you're doing today? Ah, uh, hard. <laughs> I don't think I, I, so. I don't think even even again, even these days when we take a vacation and come back, we are like, hey, ten days is too high. We should just go back, right? And <laughs> there is a, another related concept which a lot of people. I can't say the expanded, um, you know, version of that, but it's called fu money. Okay. Right. <laughs> a lot of um, right. you know, entrepreneurs right. like you know, uh, professionals, etc. Say, if I earn enough fu money. True. I can walk away from this, and personally, that never computes for me because if you enjoy what you do, Absolutely. the concept of you know getting to a place where you can stop doing that makes no sense. No, again, I don't think. Say again, money for me has always been a, a kind of a poison that doesn't matter actually, truly. And fortunately, Touchwood, uh, I think our lifestyles don't need anything more than what we have. So to that extent, I've never kind of felt that need of money being a driver of anything, literally, right? To that extent, uh, so. Didn't matter at all. <laughs> I'm going to switch tracks now and go back to your career. Um, the first company that you started working with was, which many cons- most consider the company that kickstarted Bangalore's uh, tech revolution. Absolutely, Texas Instruments. Correct. And you joined Texas Instruments in '95, and you were True. there for roughly three years. What was Bangalore like back then? And what was, like, you know, in some senses, you're going back to the source. Like, we can trace your career back to True. Bangalore's evolution as a tech hub in India. What was it like then? No, it was an extremely, uh, I truly believe a lot of the foundational cultural elements and the the realization that you can actually build a scaled organization out of Bangalore by coordinating and cooperating across the whole globe. I think that realization and the reality hit us, I think, when we were in Text Instruments. Bangalore was obviously in a very, very different place. There was only two aspects happening. One is a big IT services hub. Obviously, the defense and the government organizations were the, were the, were the larger part of the whole. Uh, Bangalore was much more, obviously, no traffic. It was beautiful to drive around. Climatic conditions were beautiful. So I think I think we all loved that city that, that existed. Yeah, I was and, a student in Bangalore yeah. during that time. I couldn't Absolutely. drive around, but everything else Absolutely. I completely right. connected. So, so that, that was the city that existed. TI was a kind of formative because I think pretty much I remember spending almost 18 hours a day because your bachelor, you didn't have anything to do. You had a computer in front of you was a big thing. I, I don't think uh, affordability of his computer was always a challenge. And with internet connectivity and computers and you suddenly had Google coming along, I think that was just a fascinating time for all of us. From Texas Instruments, uh, there's another connection to you, which is also an institution which many people don't know about so much these days, which right. is NSR Cell Correct. Uh, at the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, which is where Amagi started. Correct. Do you want to tell us about NSR Cell? A couple of things. And again, um, again, there are two relationships here. One is NS Raghavan himself. So NSR one was, of the our, co-founders of was one of our investors and co-founder of Infosys. He was the investor in our first company which is Impulse Soft, which is the first wireless multimedia company that we ran. To that extent, so we knew NSR and we and NSR cell happened because, again, it, it was very serendipitous, right? So we used to sit in a park and brainstorm what we wanted to do. And uh, one day somebody told me that uh, that NSR started a NSR cell incubation. We should actually go to IM and look at it. So we went and we obviously fell in love in the campus and said, okay, this is a place where we should start our work. Why should we sit in a coffee shop and then do it? So we actually got into the campus Talked to them and I remember the first day when I went in and told told them that we need some space. They said, where's your business plan? We said, no, no, we need space for writing the business plan. 
And they said, no, 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 you have to write your business plan and then only we can give you space. So there was a coffee day outside. We used to sit in the coffee day shop, pretty much wrote the business plan in the next week and uh, put that together and actually got into NSR cell. Uh, one of the, uh, the sweetest sort of people who have really high motivation to make things successful there. Uh, I think we've had a fascinating journey. In fact, even today, I think this is a, that's an emotional connection for us uh, with IAM. <laughs> So, uh, Mr. N.S. Raghavan invested in your company as well. Earlier um, as well as in the current company as well. Absolutely. That's right, in the yes. current company. Correct. If I'm not mistaken, I think when I last met you, he had roughly invested somewhere of the order of like some 37 he, he crores. He had about 25 crores of money that he had actually put in. I mean, since this is historical, what was the, like, you know, what was the valuation, what was the stake that he got back then? Okay, so just to give you, let me give you two stories, which I yes. think is very important to understand. So this is a person that's influenced me in my life in terms of how I see the perspective of things, right? I remember 2000 um, in Impulse Soft, which is our first company. We were all of about 27, 28. We were kind of uh, struggling, no venture capital in those days. And uh, we were trying to meet our cash flows. Uh, my CFO, who's kind of an elderly gentleman, called up and said, hey, Baska, we cannot pay the money for this. So this month, we don't have the salaries. <laughs> what do we do? I know a gentleman called N.S. Raghavan. He was the co-founder. He had just retired in 2000. Why didn't we go meet him? So the next day, it was just on 25th of that month, I remember, we went to went to meet him. And I gave him a lot of mumbo-jumbo about how Bluetooth and wireless and multimedia is going to change the world and all of that. He listened to it about 45 minutes and said, Baskar, I don't understand a thing of what you're speaking. But I can tell you, you folks are passionate. So tell me what you need, is what he asked me. And I don't think I was prepared for that question of tell me what you need. So the largest number I can think of is said two crores. I said, I need two crores. Then he called somebody and actually wrote a check in front of me, gave it to me. That is kind of a completely surprising moment. I don't think I ever expected somebody to write a two crore check uh, immediately to an unknown person, completely out of the blue. And I asked him, what's the terms? And all he said, don't worry about all of that. We'll, we'll discuss later. Go solve your salary problem right now. Just continue, then we'll talk about it. I think that changed the way of trust levels that people could have on completely different individuals and how, how he saw entrepreneurship. I think truly that that was a big changing moment. And in fact, when we started Amagi, uh, the first check came from, from NS, NS Raghavan. So they wrote a 12 crore check without having a business plan. Literally, there's nothing. They said, we trust you. Just go ahead and do it. I remember the first venture capital was Mayfield Series A fund that we're doing. A week before series, term sheets had come in from uh, from Mayfield, and Mayfield sure told us, "Hey, can you give us the term sheets for the, the 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 final documents for the last round?" And he said, "I didn't have anything." And we had twenty five crores invested by NS Raghun, and not a single pa piece of paper between us. What what percentage did he own in your company back then, approximately? Roughly, uh, I think eventually we kind of aligned on a on a on a teens, right? Got so it. That's what we did actually. Got it. But. But that was based on the valuations that we got. And till then, we didn't even talk about valuations till till the Series A happened. So from 2011, 12, 13, 14, uh, 13. And your Series A was at what valuation? Do you uh, remember? It was about, I think, I don't even remember. It may be less than 100 crores. Got I don't, it. I don't remember actually. Right? So it was a fascinating time in that sense. That sort of trust levels that people have. And even today, I feel indebted to them saying, hey, this is these are people who kind of helped us to put the foundations for the company. And that is something that I always need to give back. <laughs> but that's, I mean, I'm assuming compounded because NSR, like, you know, still continues to be on your cap yes, table. Yes, correct. So the, that first meeting that you had with him and the two crore that he gave to you for Impulse Soft ended up in Amagi. When I'm assuming, even if I do the math, 
it would no, no, be somewhere off the yeah absolutely I, i think it's it's been super successful for them and uh, and i think that's well worth it for them as well hopefully we're making that worthwhile <laughs> what is it that you feel you add most value to amagi as a ceo if you were to pick one thing what would it be it's changed a lot rohan in terms of the the evolution of the company in a startup mode was a very different needs from a company standpoint largely you were acting as almost like a quasi product manager working through products working with engineering and working the product out literally now if i really look back and have 700 people on board and what you do my biggest concern every day is about really organization structure culture and values It's really focusing on culture and values in terms of hey how do we bring in the behaviors that we need as a company how do we bring in the context of what we want to accomplish so it's a more of a communications job right now rather than a a definition of job if you look at it i understand the point that you're making but i'm going to play dumb yeah. for the benefit of many people who must be wondering why is it a ceo's job to think about communications True. can't he just hire someone who does communications culture values like so if i were to kind of play the devil's advocate True. why is this so important for you couple of things uh, rohan this is not about uh, communication in a, the brass tack sense of really talking to people or telling them what to do or anything like this right this is about sharing an emotion uh, sharing a perspective which is super important i truly believe as leaders uh, beyond a point you're not going to be executing on everyday basis on your own so teams matter uh, their ability to execute matters the directions and the fundamental values that you can actually imbibe at this level is the most important aspect uh, any anybody can do as a leader i think that's the most important job that i do in the company today uh nobody else can actually communicate and again not from from an arrogant standpoint as from the perspectives as a founder and uh, what is the seriousness that i can actually bring on board and saying hey this is the way we look at things this is the way we would like to have you the context this is the way we value things for example I think this is is the most important job. Any any CEO, I'm sure a lot of the CEOs do that uh, every day, day in and day out. Today, do you think it's the job of a CEO to try and make themselves redundant? Absolutely right. So one of the core elements, I think, from good to great, uh, from Jim Collins, the one of the only tenets that we picked up, and again, even today, I'm trying to practice that, is really timekeepers versus clock builders. The core concept is fairly straightforward. A timekeeper is somebody who's wearing a watch. and anybody who wants time they know how to look at the watch and tell you the time a clock builder is building a clock setting it on the wall and then pretty much everybody can see time on the clock rather than actually talking to them the idea of amagi and where we are and this is something that i talk to our teams is we are trying to build it for the next 25 30 years beyond all of us beyond us at least for surely for as founders i don't think we don't want to be the the crutch if you will for the company at any point of time So in that context we're trying to build an institution of sorts. So for me the core value systems matter. We're not trying to build a corporation. It's an institution for us, right? In terms of building that value set, we don't even know whether we'll be in the media business or otherwise because things will change, things will move. Can we build the foundational tenets of why this organization exists? What's the purpose of this organization? Put a cadence of creation of innovation and put the right sort of people, culture and value systems in the framework, the backbone of the company. and let it loose it should just continue to grow there is no reason for a founder to exist in the middle of all of this so we see ourselves as more of custodians of these value systems to be able to transfer it and adequate amount of transfer and and then the company can actually go on go on organically i beyond this i think we don't need to exist fundamentally if i may um, try to rephrase that as a separate metaphor your engineering an organic organism 
and which can survive on its own, which Absolutely. can evolve on its own. Absolutely. And then you're saying once that happens, in many ways, this connects back to my earlier question about parenting as well, because this connects back to the concept of, correct, um, you know, bringing a child to the world Absolutely. and then making them independent. A lot of what you're doing with your kids and then at some point saying, Absolutely. you don't need us anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, if you look at it, interestingly for me, the corollary is both my children, because they are about 2006 and 2008 where they were born, to the point of our company's evolution, pretty much it's very parallel to each other. The maturity of these also has been parallel to some extent. Do you therefore think that you have three? <laughs> we have like, three children, know? literally, right? <laughs> so to that extent. But hopefully, we're going to let them go. Maybe hopefully the next two years, if we can things happen, exactly when they go to college, I'm assuming Amagi doesn't need me personally. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the point that discussion that we were having about you pivoting. Um, right. This was roughly when? 2016-17 time frame. So you were born in 2008, 2010 uh, when you started operations. True. You'd been around for six, seven years. Yes. You'd raised about um, $40, 40 million. Dollars. Correct. You were making hundreds of crores in revenue True. and then you decided to give it all away. Correct. You were focusing on the India market. You decided to focus on the US market. Correct. You were focusing on buying ads and reselling ads. You said, we are not in this business. We're going to get into the Correct. business of selling cloud software True. and like, you know, True. this thing too. So if you go back and look at that, if you could observe yourself back then, right? what would tell you that that was the right decision? Because in the with the benefit of hindsight, we now know you made the right decision. True, true. I don't think it was as apparent as what it is. Exactly. Today, so what? Sure. How, did you, how did you make this? Because it wasn't easy. It's not that you were, the obvious signs of a pivot are your money's run out, true. your business is not growing, you're losing customers, and your investors are saying you got to do something else. But correct. you didn't have any of those. Correct. Correct. So what did you see? A couple of things, Rohan. Again, always as founders, when we started this company, uh, we kind of set ourselves with three things. We said, we like to build a company which is large in terms of revenue, in terms of growth, in terms of what we want to accomplish. Again, we, are, we were happy to be patient. We said, let's build it for the next 25, 30 years. Nothing, no hurry. We're not talking about a five-year journey here, but a 25, 30-year journey. That is clear to us. Second is we wanted to build always with disruptive technologies, something which is disrupting the business. It should change things. So post-Amagi, pre-Amagi should look very different. That was the whole idea. Whatever that means. So we said, okay, that, that, those are the tenets that we started off with. Obviously, the third was we wanted to start something out of India, which I think is, where the, is the big principle change that we did in 2016-17. Coming back to that particular moment, what is apparent to us is not about growing the business. I think it would have continued to grow. But the fits and starts and the struggles that it would have continued to happen was fairly clear for us that if I'm going to look at it in a 25-year timeline, the five, six years, I would rather write it off rather than continue the pain of going through this process of trying to grow a company from 100 to 200 to 300. To, uh, so you'd rather you disrupt yourself before somebody exactly. else disrupts you. It didn't you. make sense at all, right? So what we did was we said, okay, let's cut our limbs, go back to the basics of what we're good at, right? And that was a thought process where uh, it was it was hard for our investors because we had $5 million in the bank and the last $5 million. And now we're saying, you know what, I'm going to cut the whole business. With the thesis of their whole investment has to be cut. They have to go to their IC meeting saying this company really, pretty much they have to write off the company to some extent. Uh, but I think choices were very clear. At least for us, the choice was very clear. Hey, this seems to be the future of how it's going to happen. We need to go invest in it. I don't think our board was convinced fully, but I rather there are only two choices in front of them. One is to shut it down <laughs> or allow the entrepreneurs to do what they think do and possibly extract the value of whatever, whatever they could get to that extent. But they were very supportive. They said, okay, you folks are um, you folks know it best. If you think this is the right thing, go ahead and do it. 
obviously i i think they had the least confidence in us because we we were kind of <laughs> moving it completely from one to another more looked like a frivolous decision to some extent um uh but i think uh, hindsight i think everybody made money everybody was successful but again i don't think that was a very very clear moment of thought right but again the choices seem to be this seems to be the best direction to go your first startup impulse soft was in the bluetooth space yes uh what did you learn while growing it while selling it through the mistakes that you might have made that made you do things differently at amagi was there anything a couple of things one is i think uh, the first when we were 24 we had started our first company right so it was more of an unconscious entrepreneurship right i would call it like five years i don't think we even thought about what we wanted in life where are we going what value systems i don't think we were too immature if you will to kind of run it we were only excited about technology we said okay let's let's build something together got a group of friends to come to convince them and then boom we were off the off to the races trying to do things right uh three companies came along and said we want to acquire a impulse soft i don't think we thought through so much in terms of a blink of an eye i think uh, we had one one of our founders who was an elderly gentleman so so he wanted to exit and uh, we said okay let's all exit so we didn't i don't think we thought through so much in terms of what we wanted to build we just exited on a on a, almost a jiffy we had exited literally when amagi started we said no 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 this is something that we're going to build as a legacy as a sort of unless we kind of obviously splash and burn we don't know but we want to build it for the next 25 30 years i think that consciousness came in and in fact that drives some of our larger decision making process even today when in our company we'll always look at saying what is long term let's look at long term benefits not short term so i don't believe in a quarter or a quarter basis i tell my investors i tell my employees everybody saying hey let's look at long term what is the sustainability and growth that we can actually show in long term what are the innovation that we should actually put the foundations today for the longer term i think that thought process came in because we were not looking at what's going to happen this year next year and all of that but really look at it much more longer even as other um, founders and professionals or leaders might be attempting this one of the most significant barriers to this is the sunk cost bias which is i we've spent the last 6 years and all these millions of dollars and this entire organization doing this rejecting it is hard giving it up is hard are you today in an organization where you could do this again hypothetically if Absolutely, someone came yes. to you and said this is not there's this bigger business which is actually worth 2 billion dollars would you have the absolutely yes actually rohan in and fact how do you build fact, that culture in, in fact, the conversations we have again this is a very very conscious conversation that happens in the company and again uh, my biggest paranoia always inside the company that i talk about is i'm sure there is another 24 year old outside who is trying to disrupt us not the large companies not not the not the cloud vendors or not all these large giants literally i'm worried about the next 24 year old who's actually trying to disrupt this businesses so for me the thought process is to go back to the same basics of where we started can we cut our own limbs and actually recreate ourselves in fact there are conversations on our own product for example the moment a product is 5 6 years it is legardish that's my view so always i i have a very contra view in the whole thing my my engineering and product shudders with me when i go back tell them you know what break all of this let's start from again they saying what do you mean we built it for 6 years they're kind of hugging the software and the code i'm telling them no 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 let's not have any emotions to this cut it let's start from scratch we we'll learn new things we are actually in a new market we are a new company to the extent the only thing you brought in is the experience of what you've learned and the capital that's available for us to afford to go do things again for example that's a cultural aspect that uh, we're evolving it's hard because people get emotionally connected change is a hard problem but i think that's a reality that we need to embrace <laughs> what motivates and drives you on a daily basis just the i think the opportunity to go change things 
pretty much on a day on day basis see entrepreneurship is uh, provides you that whole freedom to do things right and again the freedom to go the imagine things go back and relook at it and see customers really buying it uh kind of subscribing to the values and the kind of the kind of what you can actually bring along i think that's a big high at any point in time right so that that i think is driving all of us it's you created something which didn't exist and someone feels there's value in it there is value in it right and i remember we started with this cloud playout i remember going to conferences in 2016 17 time frame people used to roll their eyes and said this is not happen no broadcaster in the world will ever use it this is a comment from one of the largest broadcasters uh, in that time and i said no 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 this is you you are seeing i we are able to imagine the technology that you are not able to imagine but see this whole thing right and again i don't know think and that to a company from india from india from india was very hard because people never thought india has broadcast technology and video and all of that was kind of completely esoteric to some extent but i think turn around we we were having what almost less than 10 channels on that now we have thousands right so things changed so dramatically over the last 4 5 years today when i walk in the same in the same customers come and board saying pascal it's something that we never thought it's going to happen and think you folks have been able to change that whole thing and i'm telling them hey obviously the market the evolution everybody contributed to that right that's the drug high that's the drug high right that's something that you have changed some things right i'm i'm very interested in the role that india played in amagi's evolution uh, you are an indian company correct your initial market was india and like you know even today most of your organization is here but your the revenue and customers for you largely come from north america europe etc um and there was a very interesting thing that i read in one of your interviews which said most countries unlike india do not have satellite regulations which makes it easier for us to expand licensing is an issue in india apart from the strict uh, tra regulations which makes it difficult for india to embrace newer technologies despite the efficiencies it brings is that does that essentially mean that you were able to uh, grow and expand in north america europe etc because the conditions there were more amenable to Absolutely, innovation yeah, bro and couple of things right if you look at it in the business the intersection of the business that we were getting into was first is large broadcast uh, tv technology changing tv has been historically regulated in every country in different forms and fashion right depending on sometimes something's a very very tough regulation sometimes there were much more easier regulations right if you look at uh, north america the first market we went in the regulations are much more lax when compared to the regulations of our country which is kind of very very extremely tight we came from a more of a what i call a socialist environment of regulations right and tv continued historically have it and even today for example right permission based innovation permissions based satellite has to be licensed you had only come through a satellite network why not ip we just couldn't argue that case same at all, thing right? happened in telephony also absolutely right absolutely right so that that's a very very tight regulatory culture that we, ex- we exist and possibly it's changing a lot given thanks to ott obviously that's becoming irrelevant to some extent right the way it's happening today if you look at it from an external party that two things are happening one is the infrastructure for streaming was starting to happen much much faster uh, from a us standpoint and obviously with the broadcast being much more lax in terms of the regulation aspect which helped new technologies to innovate so we could come on board very very fast in terms of being able to adopt and the culture of adopting new technologies also much 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 higher there obviously because the affordability was high uh, which actually made sense so to that extent that market kind of embraced some of the new innovations and where we could thrive as well um, that that was the basic reason why we went to the to the us to start with right i'll switch to 
the you, you and your co-founders um, Vidya and uh, Shri Srini, Srini yes. um, you met each other in college. Yes. Which was in 90s? GCT Coimbatore in 1991. 1991. So we are like, True. this is the 30, 30, 31st year. 31st that we know each other. year. Yes. Uh, and like, you know, three of you are still co-founders. You've been through two companies, Impulsoft. And, and Texas Instruments. And, and, and oh, that's right. Texas Instrument, Impulsoft True. and Amagi. Correct. True. Well, that's fantastic. True. My question is, when you're so tight knit, and right. I mean, I, I bet you can you complete each other's sentences, Easily, you know each yes, other's thoughts, right. etc., and stuff like that. True. How do you avoid self-reinforcing bubbles of belief? Where because you three know each other so well, and you know you're almost like I mean, if True. I were to use the word like a hive brain, True. right? How do you avoid that bias? Where and are you also founders? True. 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 How do I mean? A couple of things are slightly different, Rohan. And again, this is something. Three of us, and again, if you talk to any of our in a company, they'll tell you, are three entirely different characters. Uh, come with a lot of contradictions. In terms, Three of us come with extremely different, and all of us are strong-willed like everybody else. So to that extent, kind of have debates and discussions which are, which we, we can debate with each other very strongly today, right? And just to give you uh, context is, I'm an overall optimist, like extremely optimist about everything in life, saying, hey, no, 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 we'll make it happen. Even a bad thing happens, I know how to make it a more, more positive way to look at things, right? Um, Srini is data-driven. So everything he says, life is in data. So if you know the market, tell me the market sizing, let's just go after it. So everything is about, he's an externally facing person as well. So revenue function. So everything's market-driven. Vidya is very simple. So everything has to be physically seen, felt, so he's a, she's most a pessimist in some sense, not a pessimist in terms of the realist. Well, she needs to be realism, right? She she needs to she, she that's what I tell her. Hey, you're not even imagining things. So she needs to see everything, and she gets it. Then she feels comfortable about the whole thing. Three of us question each other like amazingly differently things that we do, right? So to that extent, I don't think we even have an iota of mechanism where we can actually come together. All of us saying yes is an extremely hard reality. It's it's like it doesn't happen every day, because. We don't agree on most things in terms of how we want to do things, right? But we trust each other so extremely well. And we respect each other in terms of what we can actually bring on board that we give the latitude for each other to take decisions and actually move forward. That is the way, in fact, our organization, people people feel that hey, these are like three different people, distinctly different people, but yet talk consistently across what we're trying to do and be able to do that, right? So that has been the, uh, I think for us, that's, that's been a very interesting uh, a journey in itself, uh, an exploration for ourselves in terms of how we do it. And the three of us are the best critics of each other. So we just criticize each other so easily. And in fact, across our own company, right, people also sit together and we criticize each other. People know that, hey, it's not a single view. It's not a founder view. There's nothing called a founder view in the system, right? That was actually my next question because many organizations have this cultural awe of founders. Like, What do the founders think? What is the founder's view, et cetera, and stuff? So my question was, does that exist at Amagi? Uh, okay, think? I wouldn't call it, it does not exist, but it is clearly a questionable things in some sense in our company, right? One of the things we tell people is question and confront everybody, including all of us, confront each other first, and we enable others to confront each of us, right? So that it keeps the conversations and discussions going to the root of the problems rather than a view of saying, oh, this is the founder's aspect of things, right? In a company like ours, we have what's called the yin and yang of the whole system. The core element is the value system I talked about, the vulnerability, respect for others, and being yourself and all of that. That's the core element. That we don't want to change. Everything else is flexible. 
there is not a single person in our company. We we change structures, we change organization, we change our own views of things. And I tell people we will change very you know possibly earlier than what you could think. And we change not because we don't hold any egos to that decisions as much as saying hey if it's the right decision to make or in that particular time point in time that looks the right way to do it. We'll just go continue to change. So we kind of starting to train the organization saying hey don't don't take my decision too seriously because we will change <laughs> to some extent. That's that's very useful. Do you have a philosophy inside Amagi on how teams can disagree? Like, for instance, many organizations have this philosophy of disagree but commit. Correct. You can have all your arguments, but at the end of the day, take a decision, and then you need to align yourself. So, do you have any such philosophy within Amagi of when it's a contentious decision, uh, and people aren't always on board? Right. And let's say sixty percent of the team decides this is the way to go. What does the rest of the forty percent think, or how? What how is consensus built? consensus again there is nothing called a consensus in real life right real life is all about contradictions there is a point in point in time to take decisions first first part of the equation is when you before you take a decision have you heard views of every possible things independent of the hierarchy independent of the roles that people play can we get all the inputs for example that's an important aspect of the whole decision making process but eventually there is a decision maker of sorts somebody has to take a decision and most probably it is going to be an unpopular decision of any fashion doesn't matter somebody is going to be unhappy about it but we all consider that once the decision is made let's just go after that and then do it and that includes us the three of us we don't agree on everything but yet we decide saying okay if there's something that hey let's let's go with what this is the hunch that you have okay let's let's take that as the base hunch let's move forward and boy it's been kind of obviously we made mistakes we've done been successful both 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 things happen but eventually you need that sort of a culture to build it and th- i think that's a reality there's nothing called a consensus you've obviously like you know done fundraising at various stages right from that first 2 crore check where you were not hoping to get it True. to your first like you know nsr like you know check from nsr to your first like you know formal vc funding into amagi to now 100 million dollars in september 100 million dollars in march and potentially 100 million dollars now you've become a consummate fundraiser what is it that you've learned the hard way about fundraising that you'd like to tell other entrepreneurs or founders no the biggest realization again again uh, again is also about maturity i guess in terms of thinking is i started seeing our investors themselves as a business they are a business in themselves they are in the business of raising money and spending money on things which actually make money back to them the moment that perspective came in the conversations that i have with our investors right now is very different because i treat them as another entrepreneur of of a fashion rather than as somebody is going to put the money and we're going to take the money because that is not a transaction it is a relationship that we build there right so this maturity helps a lot because our own so our, my conversation with the investor is hey what are the expectations out of this whole thing because you are investing money in the company what do you think is the end goal which will make you successful which is much more of a mature conversation to have and because the and most investors and again a lot of the investors including our current investors open up and say this is my expectations basket this is what i'm modeling in fact i work with them to help them model worst case and best case and scenarios for them to present how they should present our own company and given the vulnerability part which i actually extend to my board as well in fact i do a write up for the any of our investors joining us with an faq of how we will behave with them so that's my first uh, mail that goes to my board right so as part of it vulnerability again we say hey we want to be vulnerable to you so don't be judging us every day because you're not going to get anything because i'm going to tell you what's not working what we don't know what we are failing it 
and uh, that's the way we are so you're not going to get, you're going to get a completely unadulterated view of the company and you can choose and to judge us but <laughs> that won't help you after you put the money to that extent these were the two biggest learnings for me being comfortable about your failures and helping them to kind of be part of that whole journey is important second treat them as a business treat them as as not as an investor versus an entrepreneur conversation but an entrepreneur to entrepreneur conversation where there are expectations there are things that they need to accomplish and get get their jobs done how do we kind of help them through the process i think those two have helped a lot you didn't study business in college no um you're fundamentally a technologist but you're i mean you've said in the past that you know you're really interested in business and strategy True. how do you so a why and b how do you keep on top of like you know uh do you read do you study yeah or? absolutely a lot of reading i do but uh, again um two things right i don't like pedantic <laughs> conversations or books for example so i don't go to these how to become successful sort of books which which doesn't make sense for me right i i always look for insights i look for people coming with new ideas new thought process even if i don't agree with that how do i kind of get to see and hear from people and look at insights that's so my how readings, do you do that in your like you know space because the space that you operate in i mean but the generics of the business itself and the universality of some of the concepts and what we're trying to do is exactly the same right so i love the whole idea of structures of business the evolution of business for example a two sided market problem pretty much kind of lends itself to a lot of businesses today for example if you look at it right uh, how do you build monopolies for the future so you can actually figure out that that's that's not anything specific to a particular business so you're going back to first principles Absolutely right. So we, I think, score is the same. So nothing has changed in terms of it's just you are kind of applying it to a particular environment to some extent. So I do learn a lot. Uh, that that's where it is. It's just about concepts that I love. So again, for me, business, technology are all straddling. These are these are all I think artificial human uh, boundaries we've created for ourselves. I see this as a continuum of thought to some extent. You'd said earlier that, like you know, you and Vidya do homeschool your children as well, and that sounds very intense. So what does a typical week look like for you split between amagi and like your children and home it depends on the number of crisis and where, <laughs> where the crisis you are actually hitting right to some extent but you have to uh, average it out zoom out we average it out over time right and again we right. do this a uh, couple of things at least school environment we try to kind of create uh, some sort of a curriculum and expectation on a monthly basis so it's exactly like a company we said hey what's our monthly goals for this this month uh with this particular course do we follow okrs inside amagi <laughs> not yeah we do follow okrs in amagi <laughs> for the children we set that up for sort of a month some version of an okr some version of okr we set it up saying hey this is what it is we dr- drill them down saying hey, this is the three things we're going to really accomplish this month you have to be on top of it and we've set up some time right again until mornings for example we set up some time which is very regular time with the children to kind of get them to do the course and then we allow them the whole day is free for them to go do their homeworks assignments and go to soccer and all of that that obviously we get to the company it's pretty much we lost what what's happening at home then it's like till about midnight <laughs> then it's really the company that runs what's the split between you and vidya like on who teaches what is there a split yeah we do a split so she teaches math i teach physics and chemistry and uh, some of the first level of history i've taken some stuff yeah <laughs> a lot of people talk about how they learn not enough people talk about how they teach It's very interesting that you're also teaching your children but I think as a CEO one of the fundamental things that you do also is teaching what you know to others within Amagi. Right. How do you do that? I love teaching actually as just as a profession I think it's it's an interesting profession where I think uh, 
So a uh, lot of time I'm actually spending is really helping people to learn, which is even in the company. In the, at Amagi, my first thing is always to pick a board and a, and, a, and a marker pen and then start from basics again, saying, hey, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what it is, right? So to that extent, it comes naturally for me. Personally, it's, it's a much more of a natural flair for uh, wanting to teach, wanting to maybe not uh, pontificate, but at least teach. <laughs> I think that's something that's core to the way I do things, both inside the company and uh, with the children, of, of course. Yeah. How do you archive or store interesting. So you said you're a fan of first principles and you're always trying to understand how things are, how businesses were built, etc. Do you have a mechanism or model to essentially archive or store those insights or is it, it's in your brain? It's kind of, uh, I think every two years, so, some influences change. So it's not the same influence across a 20-year timeline. If you look at it, I think good to great pretty much grappled you with the first four years. You're really Everything seemed to be a good to great problem. And to some extent, you go back to the same things. So some of these are very uh, gravitating principles which can kind of drive you to some extent. For example, innovators' dilemma was really a part of a big part of our equations. Because we were disrupting. We were always looking back and saying, hey, uh, do that. And when we started our cloud playout environment, we exactly kind of looked at ourselves as, a, like, as kind of the the scrappy startups which are trying to do build something which is for a broadcast, which is elitist in some sense. How do you kind of grow through that process, right? So every time we kind of re-looked at some of these concepts and kind of possibly uh, wrongly or rightly kind of reinforced ourselves saying, hey, this is the path that we are actually taking. We are part of that innovator's dilemma problem that we are in and we're trying to do that, right? So that's been, so there are pockets of different um, influences, if you will, that that changes across the whole ecosystem of things. I always look forward to new influences. So that's that's sort of the journey that I go through in terms of really How is creating. That? Is that through books, through Through people? books and Audible is my way of looking at things. But fundamentally, because um, I do a lot of cycling as, a, as an individual, so about 100 kilometers a week. So so um, that's my time, which is like pretty much I spend time in Audible trying to learn new things, understand new things. That That's just, uh, I'm a sucker of uh, no information, right? <laughs> to the extent that just keeps me, that that's for me is entertainment. In fact, more than anything else, that's my entertainment, actually. <laughs> so that was going to be my next question. We now know there's, you know, significant part of you which is invested in Amagi. There's Amagi time, then there's family time, which includes like, you know, homeschooling time. My next question was, what's Baskar time? Uh, it's really the, my cycling time, which I actually do. I, in addition to that, I also actually work with a lot of other companies. So that obviously drives a lot more on my weekends. As that, an uh, advisor? As an advisor, I've invested in companies which obviously go through their own crisis situations, which I need to be involved in. Uh, but again, fascinating, fun companies that um, I'm able to see a ringside view and kind of put the hat of an entrepreneur as an investor to another entrepreneur. I kind of appreciate what my investors are going through with me, right? <laughs> to that extent, I think I learn a lot in terms of those uh, conversations and how not to be an entrepreneur in control at every point of time. When you're an investor, you want other entrepreneurs to flower and bloom and make the same mistakes. It's almost like child making mistakes. You think you want to kind of go grab them, but you don't want to at some points in time. Allow them to fail as well, right? So, Within Amagi, what are the metrics that you obsess over? Two or three metrics. Like if if you were to say pick these are the three metrics and everything else I can forget, but these three are what I will look at. What would those be? 
for me uh, innovation comes first right so How for me track that as a metric um, product velocity is a, is an important metric right for me if you are able to again could you could you explain that for our listeners what yeah. product velocity means say again the, the the tenet that we are actually evolving right so if you look at it again as i told you it's in a 25 year journey we're not talking about the next 3 4 years right so we wanted to build a, a framework which can actually be timeless to some extent so the framework that we are evolving and again it's a work in progress is start with saying oh there is no first we are taking out the whole idea there's a visionary in the company or anybody has a crystal ball that they know exactly what's going to happen so assuming that's out of the picture because when you're building something for 25 years it cannot be something that that can actually be scalable from a system standpoint then only comes customers how do you listen to customers in the most kind of much more fashion where you're able to structurally extract the data that's happening insights that's coming from customers that's happening bring it back into the company and conceptualize a product how do you do that how do you systematize like you know something like this lots of different things we're trying i i wouldn't call it we're successful yet uh, because the re- again it's an interesting sort of a dialogue dynamic it's a large organization it's happening all over it's all over it doesn't filter we are having you. for example see think about it right if you have a salesperson talking to three customers every day that's three signals Correct. that we're actually having per salesperson and if you just multiply it over the number of people who are talking externally you have so many signals happening every day obviously thanks to ai and thanks to some of the recording systems and all of that there are many different ways that are evolving right now again i wouldn't call i have a one single silver bullet on that front right now but we're trying to really bring a structured set of intent and insights from our customers into a product formation setup the conceptualization of product how can my product teams listen to every customer interaction every day that's happening and get those extract those insights so that our product conceptualization becomes better and better second part is really how fast can i take this product conceptualization and build a product out of this whole thing and bring it out of the door how repeatedly and fast that's velocity for us in terms of how is, fast is there a metric that you reduce it to typically it's just covered in terms of what we call the feature set right the feature how fast are you bring the feature to production from the right. time of conceptualization to production is your time to really build a product for example again work in progress lot more effort in doing that actually right once you do the product velocity how do you going kind to of bring it to customers and make them a superlative uh, customer success function feedback again get back to the customers so do this repeatedly and faster and faster and better and more real time i believe will be a way to get to success rather than some crystal ball of what will happen 3 years what happened 5 years i don't think it makes sense for us we want to churn every day to get there many organizations um, and especially those who are passionate about products spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out what else can we do what new can we build not enough time or uh, is spent thinking on what can we kill hmm. what is no longer being used do you have a system inside amagi that essentially looks at that look i mean it's great to constantly be adding but if you're only adding then like you said it's leading to laggardish bloated products over time correct which so do you have a system to essentially look at what's not needed what we should absolutely kill uh that is a very hard decision rohan and again i personally obviously i'm i'm kind of being the carrying that particular torch inside the company but i don't think we have a system or a structure in place yet for doing that in fact because there is no impetus there is no direct no, again yeah. no i don't think our sales teams will ever come and say this product can actually be eol or end of life right they don't want to do that because they want to keep that that greed the of having many many more products offer. to sell right. always exist fundamentally obviously my devil product development teams would love to kill some of the past legacy to some extent right because they have to support it they have to support it right 
uh, we've done successfully we've done a few which we actually kind of completely gone to end of life but can we do better i think absolutely we can do a lot better um, i'm kind of carrying the torch saying no, no no let's cut this off let's let's kind of reimagine things reinvent things and that's something that we're starting to do much more successfully the last 18 months but again it's, it's not yet there what phrases are you known for inside amagi if someone heard this phrase they would be like is baskar around uh when i talk about long term and journeys the destination is a very very standard phrase that i use with a lot of people in my career conversations and others so that is something that people uh, <laughs> do realize it what's the one line your team dreads to hear from you uh, the moment i uh, i'm angry or at least uh, i i don't get anger at all actually so i actually simulate anger if you will right that is a serious thing because typically i don't i'm not a very uh, and and what would you say then i is it I facial expression is it something you facial say facial or even my emails for example if if you get an email from me which is strong that's really really serious <laughs> that that's what the teams teams come back saying hey baskar is writing a mail like this we have to really take this seriously because else you typically i'm very forgiving to some extent but something comes up like that 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 takes in quite a serious fashion <laughs> what are three of the most common adjectives your colleagues might use to describe you i think optim- everybody knows i'm an optimist so that people say okay baskar says that that's, that's going to be something that uh, he's dreaming of things <laughs> so that's what he's going to tell us second i think people say whatever products that i we come up with they say okay this is like uh, this is baskar's product that means it's 3 years away that's what that's what it means inside the company means as 3 years away is what he says today is means 3 years later is what we needed <laughs> you're too ahead of time so that is something that happens regularly <laughs> both of these are very interesting because in some senses these are a ceo's burden to carry being optimistic because in some senses you have to be optimistic even though right i mean you know the world may not see reason in that but you have to and also you have to think about what the software or the product will be 3 years from now Correct. because it's possible that somebody else isn't true true right so this is very interesting what is the one thing that all of your direct reports will agree about you uh they will agree with the fact that i'm actually a much more of a softer person so actually most probably i'll allow them to take decisions so typically most decisions are made by them and they're comfortable with that actually right so as a person they will always think okay uh most probably basker will agree with what i say that that seems to be the office or work from home office why I think I need to interact with so many people. I love to do that as well and I think uh, I miss the board. I think no technology today has replaced it as much as a a whiteboard, a simple whiteboard. So most of our conversations what could happen in 10 minutes in an office would take maybe hours <laughs> outside so. That's fascinating. Something as simple as a whiteboard or like a marker with just a glass. True, true, true. What is a productive day in office that leaves you feel satisfied at like you know look like what would you have done during that day that makes you feel like wow this day was totally worth it so large part for me is the the high i get is when i spend time with the product engineering teams really thinking through the next step and designing things and i see some of the work that they've done and the progress they've done that is for me is exciting uh, for, for example i think today when i was waking up my next next half of the whole day is really a workshop with the team and i'm really looking forward to it because that was the that for me makes the day for me in terms of i'm going to see what all they've done how do we kind of help them out doing things right that's things that you don't know of and things that are yet to come. yet to come absolutely absolutely what part of your job do you wish you didn't have to do okay, i think i'm an uh, 
I wouldn't call this, again, what is the definition of CEO always kind of, people kind of have an expectation of what the CEO should look, behave, do, function, all of that. I'm not a classic CEO and I don't, I don't think I call myself a CEO as well, right? Uh, from my job in life is much more focused on trying to work with people, get to the next generation, look at future and all of that. So I'm kind of carving out a role for myself for what I like. So in fact, I tell people, like, these are some things that I'm going to hire people so that I don't need to solve those problems. So day-to-day administrations don't really, I'm sure, doesn't. <laughs> most of us might not like it and might want to avoid it. I do the same as well. What about finance? I like finance because I kind of I understand the details. and I, I love to have numbers in my head, literally, right? So even at this level, I tell people, hey, I need top five numbers in my mind every time. So I can rattle out those numbers. And Are you an Excel person or a Google Sheets person? I am, uh, we use both. But again, I, I can come from the Excel given my 20 year. That's right. <laughs> Legacy, we're all Some dinosaurs. Some of us can't get extent, over right? Word and Excel. <laughs> true, 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 true. What have you changed your mind about when it comes to managing and motivating people? Lots. Uh, in the earlier days, if you look at it uh, over the last maybe, last three years has been transformative to some extent. And again, thanks to COVID to some extent and the growth of the company, which is happening simultaneously for us. I was less of a communicator. Essentially, it was much more uh, an introvert and I continue to be an introvert. So don't, don't like... Really... It's not apparent. I must tell you that. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. So from an introvert standpoint, it was always... It was subtle. That means we expect people to get it, not really communicate through a very explicit process of things, right? It helped in a, in a world where everybody's in the same building, same place. They could see you, watch you. There are kind of... Subtle cues. Very, very simple cues through which things were happening, right? Versus the moment we actually got into a more of a COVID world and the growth was this happening, then I realized that we need to, I need to change my style completely in terms of being very explicit about communication, Talking about values, for, for example, values were never talked about. It was actually practiced and that's what it is. And when somebody asks you, you can kind of intuitively say that, but you never had a codified mechanism of uh, bringing it, right? Now that's starting to become important in terms of doing it and doing it much more explicitly, given the company is also global and international. Communications, uh, I have changed a lot in terms of uh, looking at it much more explicitly, which I, I wouldn't have, actually. Last few questions. What has parenting taught you about yourself? Parenting has taught me how, um, I think, patience for all of us, I guess. Yeah, that's a universal lesson for <laughs> all of us. That's a universal lesson that all of us learn. Uh, one of the biggest learnings for me is not to apply your mirror image on your child. I think uh, that's a very conscious aspect. Expectations on of us on our children is has been a big, big learning journey, right? Again, all of us tend to do that. We think an extension of ourselves to some extent cutting that umbilical cord to some extent and treating them as an individual with their own ideas, values, arguments and conversations and beliefs. Uh, in fact, I go to an extent where I've told my children, you can choose your religion, you can choose whatever you want to believe in and keep that sort of comfort and then doing it. I think it took us some time to get to the maturity of that. Right? What are some of the things that you do that others might find quirky? Lots. <laughs> So people, again, I most of my time in office is with the, with the chapels, right? So the slippers, right? That's what I, I wear in my office, right? So my investors also get sometimes really riled up saying, Baskar, why are you on slippers today? I said, no, I go to board meetings with slippers. So 
So I remember one of my fine if they can do it in Silicon Valley we can do no, it. No, no, I've always been like that. So that's nothing to do with fashion, but as much as I've been always that way, right? That's no, what comfort. So so that's for comfort, and I feel that that's that's sort of environment. Uh, any environment. It's also very Bangalore. Coming. Yeah, it's very. Bah, I yeah. cannot imagine Correct. that happening in Delhi. True, true, true. Absolutely right. So I used to do that. So that's something that people comfort. I think a lot of employees when they join in, they say, "Okay, what is this basket? Is the slippers?" It was always a quirky thing to some extent for them. In fact, we had a story where one of our employees didn't join us. because he felt if 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 founders don't have a money to buy a slip shoes what that's, happened that's, right that's a good point it's a good spot actually i can so imagine so that happens i'm uh, obviously a hardcore vegetarian so a lot of our cakes in office are all eggless unfortunately because of me i tell them hey, it's okay not to worry about it so that's something that people are your children vegetarian as well uh both of them eat eggs and yeah they don't but again that's their choices again i don't really get involved in that i don't wear leather so lot of lot of quirks so again uh uh-huh. <laughs> Are would it be comfortable? Would it be okay for employees at Amagi also to come in slippers? Absolutely. Too? They, in fact, we we don't have any sort of. In fact, we tell people whatever, and some some of them actually do barefoot at at office. We that's that's what it is. Comfort is important. Good. If you were locked in a room for twenty four hours with no internet, what you would you rather be doing? I would love it actually. <laughs> what would you do? So, see, I I like to sit down and think, and but I need a notepad. That's all I need actually. Notepad and a pen. I'm comfortable with myself, literally. I think. So, this, when you're thinking and ideating, is a notepad and pen your preferred? Yes, like you know this absolutely. thing, or is it like a word document? No, or? no, it's a notepad. In fact, first time I really put it on a notepad first. I think writing gives. I don't know. There is there's an intuitive feeling of handwritten clarity that can come in. when you and i'm i'm a more of a drawing person not a not a writing person how so i'd like to tra- um, track the life cycle of let's say you you're doodling and something right. very creative comes along and i've seen this happen and like you know for many people like you have notepads and notepads and they filled up right and since it's not digital right. it's not searchable and <laughs> it's gone so do you have a process where you actually say this was interesting i need to save yes, it somewhere always. what, what happens that? is first first time i do all my drafts on notepads uh, and again blank sheets of paper which is kind of giving you that perspective right we do that and something is interesting then i take it and convert it into powerpoint uh, uh-huh. so that i can communicate to others and actually get through that uh, first thing is super exciting first is a camera click and then send it to people but after that is really about formalizing that Got it. When you go out to eat, six out of ten times, what's the one dish that you will typically order? I think comfort food is pasta in Italian. I guess for everybody, <laughs> but yeah. All right. Uh, what does focus mode look like for you when you need to like spend, let's say, five hours, six hours of undisturbed time? What does it look like? You shut yourself in a room. Is there music? No music. You... I'm really a silent person, so I just want everything to be really shut down. Literally. as silent as possible and just just spend my time and uh, i'm a, i like solid solitude a lot so i do spend time to with myself on a scale of 1 to 10 and i think i know the answer to this how happy are you with life i think it couldn't have been any better than what i think i've loved so the life so it's 10 i was yeah yeah absolutely that's right. i i sense so in well. fact every morning when i think about saying okay if i die today i think i'll be happy extremely happy because that that's that's life for me personally <laughs> um, i share a lot of those views but it's still very um fascinating to hear this from you doing what makes you lose all sense of time again technologies product related aspects i sit down i just want to love to spend more and more time on that same with my children when i really do coursework which they are responsive <laughs> when they are responsive i think it just sucks my time and we get into different paths and tracks i love that actually right. what are the last 3 books you listen to on audible 
two or three, whichever. Two or three would be zero to one is one. I I yeah. always go back again. And I'm listening yeah. to maybe third time, I guess. But I do that just to kind of understand some of. Peter Thiel has his own strong views. Maybe not a, not all I subscribe to, but but I do do that. Uh, I've been into uh, some of the philosophy books right now in terms of trying to understand a couple of books that I've been uh, reading. And I did the Ramayana again. <laughs> so just kind of for me, that goes back to uh, the other stories of Ramayana. I don't know if you've heard of that. Actually, so it's an interesting take on Ramayana from different perspectives and different tribal stories and folk stories and from Indonesia oh. to South India and all of that. Sounds interesting. So, I'll definitely so, read it. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Last question. What new things have you tried recently? Anything which you normally don't do and you experienced and, you know, I uh, for for example I bought a one wheel for my kid a unicycle uh, yeah and I've been trying that uh, bravely enough and uh, I'm doing that so how hard is it it's kind of yeah once you get the balance it's good oh that, that that's essentially the entire once you get the balance, balance. hides the entire <laughs> true, complexity true, true. within it no it is but again once you do it you start enjoying it and then I've been kind of are doing that as a as a new skill that I'm kind of learning <laughs> That's what I've been doing. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been such a fascinating and pleasant and wide-ranging conversation, Bhaskar. I really appreciate you driving an hour and 45 minutes okay. to the studio <laughs> and then an hour and 45 minutes back. Um, you know, that's the unsaid part of Bangalore. Everything is great about Bangalore, but <laughs> then true. there is that as it's well. True. It's true. Thank you so much. And best wishes for whatever Thank comes next at Amagi. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was our second interview. Thank you for making it this far and since you have I would love to hear what you thought of the conversation. Did you learn anything new after viewing the world through Bhaskar's lenses? Were there questions I missed? Are there questions you want me to ask other guests? Please write to us at podcasts@theken.com. P O D C A S T S at the rate T H E hyphen K E N.com. I'll see you again soon.